The Granzadillo School of Business and Management at Pepperdine University proudly presents the Dean's Executive Leadership Series. This podcast invites top business practitioners and thought leaders to share their view on the real world of business. Well, good evening, everyone. I hate to break up your conversation, but uh, we should get started with the evening. I'm Linda Livingstone, Dean of the Grazia Dio School at Pepperdine, and I'd like to welcome you to our first uh, event in our Dean's Executive Leadership Series this year. Uh, interestingly, we concluded last year's series here uh, with John Figueroa, who's the president of McKesson Pharmaceuticals, an alum, and we will begin this year uh, in Northern California as well with Randy Pond. And I will introduce Randy in more detail in just a few minutes, but I did want to um, make a couple of announcements and a couple of introductions as well. But I do want to make sure that I thank Farmers Insurance Group. They have sponsored our Dean's Executive Leadership Series for several years, and we're very appreciative of them. That happens through Faye McClure, who is an alum of Pepperdine and on our Board of Visitors in the Business School. So we thank them for that. And if you know anybody at Farmers, thank them as well for supporting this series for several years now. Um, I also want to thank uh, Ron Berryman, who is with us this evening. Ron, wave at everyone. Ron is also on our Board of Visitors and uh, an alum of uh, Pepperdine. And Ron is actually responsible for getting Randy to be with us this evening. They work on March of Dimes boards and have an affiliation that way. So Ron, thank you so much for being a part of that. While I mention Ron, I will also uh, update you on uh, another uh, initiative that we've been working on, Ron's involved in that, so I will mention it as I introduce Ron. We uh, just this last summer uh, started a uh, black alumni affinity group uh, for the business. Well, it really cuts across the whole university, and Ron was really provided leadership in that. We had a kickoff in Southern California in the summer and had about 200 people there, and they actually had another uh, event last night, and I think had over 100 people there. It was a fabulous uh, kickoff to that, and we're actually uh, working on rolling out a uh, Hispanic alumni affinity group as well. So pay it, watch for those things and, and look for activities and information associated with that. A um, couple of other um, things I want to update you on. There's a lot going on in the school. We've got a lot of exciting initiatives that are being driven by our strategic plan that we're calling Distinctive Leadership uh, 2015. I will mention three of them very quickly. Uh, we've rolled out two new centers in the school, a Center for Applied Research, uh, that is really focusing on how we do research better as a business school with faculty and certainly engaging students in that as well. That links to the business community. We have a very applied focus, as all of you know, that are alumni. And we want to not only do that in terms of what we do in the classroom and the learning experience, but we also want to do it in the way our faculty are engaging with the business community in terms of doing research. And so that institute has already sponsored several programs, bringing faculty and the, bus and the business community together on research. Uh, it's been a really successful initiative. One particular project that is a part of that center that you might be interested in if you're not aware of it is our private capital market study. This is being done by Dr. John Paglia. Have any of you participated in that study? Okay, so we do have a couple of people that have. It really looks at where financing comes from, what the issues are with regard to financing for private businesses. And it looks all the way from the person who needs the funding up through the venture capitalists and bankers and others that are providing the funding. And it comes out about three times a year. We have a new study that will be coming out very shortly. It's gotten tremendous national attention. And we've actually been talking to some media folks, and we've got folks like uh, the Wall Street Journal and Bloomberg that now uh, are talking to us about having exclusive rights to 
um, to that, presenting that data before it goes out with anyone else. So it's really gaining traction, and it is an element of our Center for Applied Research. So doing really great things that are affecting the learning experience in the classroom and adding real value in the business community. The other center we've rolled out recently is our Center for Teaching and Learning Excellence. And we certainly are engaged in research, but learning is the core of what we do. And so this center is designed to help our faculty to continue to, to, continue to improve and enhance the learning experience they provide, particularly to working professionals, and ensure that we maintain that really strong values focus we have, um, the real intimate learning experience that we have, and the experience-driven learning experience that we have. And then it also will have an external focus. We believe we do education in an interesting and unique way, particularly for working professionals, and we want others to, to learn about that as well. So some great things will be coming out of that. And then the final one I want to mention is our entrepreneurship program. We have retooled that completely in the last three years, have a completely new curriculum. We've hired an entrepreneur in residence who's a technology transfer expert that's really helping connect our students and alumni with technologies that can help them make their business ideas a reality, and we've had some great success stories from that. We are in the process of developing a business accelerator that will have a proof of concept center in it and an early stage funding to help students and alumni and others really be able to develop the idea to the point that it's a going concern and can really go out and function effectively. So that's been a fabulous program for us. We are oversubscribed in our entrepreneurship classes because of that, but that's a good problem to have. Um, and as part of that, we have actually uh, put, pulled together a group of very successful business people who are helping us support that program, and we're calling them Senior Fellows in Entrepreneurship. And I think we have at least one or two of those with us tonight. So Bill Vogel is right here in front of me. So Bill is one of our founding uh, Senior Fellows in Entrepreneurship. And I don't know if Manny's here. Manny Delarose is going to be joining us, I believe, this evening as well. So we've got some folks from up here, several on that group, as well as some from Southern California. So look for that. We have a, a day-long entrepreneur's journey coming up uh, within the next uh, few weeks that will be videotaped. So those of you that can't be in Southern California to see that could certainly enjoy that. We'll have our business plan competition in the spring. It's becoming a real signature uh, program for us in the business school. So as you can see, there's an awful lot going on that uh, is very exciting and really uh, moving the school forward. Uh, one last thing I will mention before I introduce uh, Randy to you. Uh, if you're on, are you, how many of you are on the, the business school LinkedIn network? Okay. So you should be on that. I think we have over 5,000 people on it. So you should be on that. And then there is a, a subgroup in there, the Pepperdine NorCal EMBA alumni and students. So you should be on that too. I believe it has how many students, how many people? About 40 or so on it. Just started this fall. The new class that started up here in the fall are like seriously into this, and it's their initiative, so we're proud of them. They're already drawing our folks together, and we love that. So support them in that effort and go on and get into their LinkedIn group as well as the Business School LinkedIn group. Well, it is wonderful to tell you about all that's going on in the school, but I know you're here because you want to hear Randy Pond, and uh, I had the opportunity to visit with him earlier for a podcast that you'll have access to. And he is just a fascinating individual on many levels. Uh, he has obviously had an extremely successful business career, done the entrepreneurial thing and done that very well, and then uh, moved into Cisco where he's had a, a really fast track and highly successful career and is now responsible for uh, most of their internal operations. And so uh, 
Randy is joining us tonight to share with us uh, his experiences and his learnings. He's the Executive Vice President of Operations, Processes, and Systems for Cisco. And I know you're all very familiar with that company being in Northern California. So I'm going to ask Randy to come up and share some remarks with us. And then when he's done, we will uh, join, I'll join him at the front and then we'll have a conversation with you all and see what you would like to ask him uh, and learn from him as well. So Randy, it's good to have you with us. Thank you very much. Well, pleasure to be here tonight. Um, you must be baseball haters, which is, uh, which is okay with me. I'm not a big fan of baseball myself. My boss is a rabid fan, but um, he was uh, disappointed. He actually has tickets wanted me to go tonight, and I said, I, I, can't, I can't make it, so you are my excuse. And it's also appropriate that Farmers is the sponsor because they just paid a $15,000 claim because my daughter wrecked my Lexus a month ago. Um, <laughs> um, if there's any Farmers people here, I'm sorry, I swear. Um, yeah, she did horrible damage to my car by driving under an SUV. Um, so what I'm going to do tonight is I want to talk about sort of the Cisco leadership model, but I want to set it up in the context of where we are seeing sort of the global shifts happen. As a multinational business, when we talk about the evolution of leadership and the evolution of the business, the macroeconomic shifts in the globe are massively important to us. And inside of Cisco, we're about a 40 plus billion dollar business today. We're 70,000 employees, we're in over 150 countries. Um, we do about half our business outside of the U.S., but it's growing much faster than the business inside of the U.S. Um, we're investing much heavier in terms of talent and um, infrastructure outside of the U.S. than we are inside of the U.S. Um, and if the current tax policies don't change soon, that will not <coughs> be, something that's be curbed anytime soon. But we have been looking at the sort of macroeconomic landscape for the last several years. And as part of that work, we think there are several things going on that both present opportunities to us as a business and a leadership team, but pose business risks that we think we have to mediate or mitigate um, as we move forward and talk about the long-term evolution of us as an enterprise. The first one, oh, sure. The first one is never going to show up. Okay, my mother. Let's see if this thing's going to go. Yeah, it is. Um, is it? Of course, make me turn it on. Um, that's why I'm an executive, I have to admit. <laughs> Sorry. Um, so the first one is, and I think this is important, in the last five years, there's been a transition in terms of the developed versus emerging countries. And for the first time, in about 2005, 2006, if you look at the share of global GDP, it's roughly at parity. And that's the first time ever that's happened. And it's important to understand, if you look at the trajectory, and I'm going to show you some additional statistics, this only gets worse. So we, we at Cisco have been a very much design, develop, and export mentality. So we have most of our employees are still in the U.S. The vast majority of our engineering resources are still in the U.S. We design, develop, and export out of the U.S. And that model is not going to work for us. And we think in the next three to five years, we're going to start seeing us have to do dramatically different work around the world to localize our product in these markets in a way that we've never done before. So if you look at the CPG people, Procter & Gamble, they, if you buy a packet of soap in India or China, you don't buy a box, you buy a nickel packet. So they've designed products for those markets where we just aren't there yet. So we have to recognize this and adopt sort of our business philosophy and our leadership style. The second one is around the shift from a country perspective. And we're sort of, we've, we've sort of gone back to the past. If you look at 1820, the, the world GDP was about well, $700 billion at that point in time. The two biggest economies in the world were India and China. 
which is pretty fascinating. By 2005, we'd lost some of the, um, the smaller European countries. India and China had moved down the list. Clearly, the U.S. and Japan rocketed to the top. If you project forward to 2050, India and China comes rebounding back in a massive sort of way. You lose most of Western Europe, and for the first time, there's more developing countries on this list than developed. And you pick up Indonesia, you pick up Mexico, you pick up Brazil, you pick up Russia. These are places where we barely have a footprint today, quite frankly. So as a business, as we look at this, we've got to say to ourselves, okay, the model has to fundamentally change, and how we look at leadership has to change. Because unfortunately, and I'm, I'm being candid here, 90 plus percent of the senior leadership team at Cisco reside in the U.S., and 90% of that 90% reside in San Jose. We're mostly American. We're mostly developed at Cisco. The average executive at the EVP level has been with the business more than 10 years. It's generally been the longest job we've had of our lives. I came in as a director, got promoted four times to get to EVP. I know Cisco, but I've known Cisco from $300 million and 1,400 people to where we are today. The question is, are we scaling globally as a leadership team fast enough to capture the market opportunities for us? There's a second phenomenon. At the population level, there's sort of three things going on. First one is the world is aging at a phenomenal pace. Um, today, uh, since 2000, about 7% of the world was over 65. By 2050, it's going to be 16%. Okay, that's an opportunity for us. We're big into healthcare, um, especially remote delivery of healthcare. We call it virtual healthcare because that's going to be needed to deal with this population of aging people. But more importantly, look at some of these countries that are big economic footprints today and big businesses for us. Japan, more than a third. South Korea, more than a third. Italy, more than a third. Germany, more than a third. Those countries make up billions of dollars of revenue for Cisco and we've got sizable population of people in those countries. So as we look forward, we've got to deal with the reality that as that population ages, the availability of talent is going to get tougher and tougher. So we've got to make smart decisions today about how we make long-term investments around the globe. Did we lose the mic? Was you want me to give me mine? We okay? He's got it. Oh, he's got it. Okay. You're okay. I'm okay. Um, so the second problem is we've also got countries that are shrinking dramatically. Um, and if you pair the aging with the shrinking, then you're really in trouble. So some of these on here, Bulgaria, Ukraine, Romania, not a big deal. Russia, very large deal. Because we're actually, we just announced a very large deal with the Russian government to build a city for technology. When you look at this kind of thing, you have to say, okay, what are they going to do to fuel their economy? What opportunity is going to be there for a company like Cisco to find resources if they're both aging and shrinking, which is the reality for them specifically? Some of these things are dramatic. These countries are going to be a third their size, and they're going to be three times as old as they are today on average. The last one is actually most disconcerting for us. There are about 12 or 13 countries that are going to go through hypergrowth. We're talking about growing anywhere from 50 to 400% in population. And here's the problem. Nine of those 13 countries have a GDP per capita of less than $1,000 a year. And as a perspective, the U.S. is about 47000 most of Europe's about 35 to 40,000 per capita. More importantly, most of these countries are of Muslim origin and are currently either in a conflict, staged for a conflict, or at odds with the U.S. So for us as a business, if this is where the population is going to be, this is where the resources are going to be. So what are we doing as an organization to lead them through their transformational change to bring education? So we have an initiative in the business 
to educate a child for a dollar a year. We run out of Bangalore, India. We've got a small team working on it. We're going to use virtual resources to bring educators into communities where they can't possibly get educated otherwise. They can't find teachers. And then when you get the teachers, the education system doesn't support them coming to work every single day. So we actually have 10,000 networking academies worldwide today, including one, at least two, in every one of those countries. We have 300 of them in Egypt, as an example, where we're actually training students to become computer literate and network literate so that when the next generation of technology hits that country, we're going to have a population that can actually deal with that infrastructure. Otherwise, we're not going to be able to sell product. But that's just a small fraction of we, what we think we're going to have to do to really sort of morph ourselves as we sort of think about the leadership model and our go-to-market model around the globe. The other thing is, and I think as a leader, the pace of change in the world today is just phenomenal. And, and I'm an old guy, so I was, we were laughing earlier. My daughters call me to tell me to read my texts because I'm just not a text guy. Um, and it's a little icon on my phone that I never pay any attention to. But the, the, the new world, um, the pace of change and the ability of the next generation of worker to absorb that change is a reality we're going to have to deal with. So, you know, we're big into social networking inside of Cisco. We have blogs. We have wikis. Um, we have a 3.0 directory that lets people put, you know, personal hobbies, uh, areas of expertise. Um, we, we, we actually created a blog for our customers. Um, we let our customers talk to each other, both about Cisco and about problems. It turns out that you can actually charge customers for a service contract and have them solve their own service problems on our blog, um, which is a very good deal. Um, but from a pace standpoint, again, things like the top 10 jobs this year didn't exist six years ago. So why is that important from a leadership standpoint? Because we have to embed both in students in college, but employees very early, that they have to live a life of continuous relearning. They're getting a job and keeping a job for a long period of time is going away, both because of the, re, the reapplication of technology to get rid of transactional work, the export of the sort of the low-skilled jobs outside of the U.S. So kids have to have a mentality that says, I need to go wide, not deep, and I've got to be prepared to retool myself about every three to five years. And as a business, we have to create an infrastructure that says, we can articulate what the jobs in Cisco is today, and what they're going to be five years from now. And we craft a roadmap that keeps that employee base in there because we don't want to lose the knowledge they bring to the business just because the specific skill has changed. But that's a very different training platform and development platform than most corporations, quite frankly, have in place. This is my, one of my personal favorites. You know, it's all, we're almost there. China's going to be the largest English-speaking country in the world. Um, you know, there's a lot of crazy statistics out there like this. The top 10% of the students in India are more students than we have in America. But that's unfortunately a reality. I mean, it, just because of the sheer size of the population. But, you know, this opens up possibilities for China that didn't quite frankly exist before. So when people get agitated about the export of jobs, the Chinese are serious about this. They're going to urbanize 300 to 500 million people in the next decade. They're building whole cities from scratch. And they're themed. There's a city called Wuxi. It's been around for 3,000 years, but it was a bit of a plunker of a little town that was about four hours north of Shanghai by road. You probably get there quicker by plane um, or train. I actually drove there. Um, the theme of the development city is the Internet of Things. So they're training in the university how to propagate the use of the Internet and get the Internet connected on every device. We're talking appliances, cars, 
phones, PCs. They're serious about this, and they're going to be able to compete globally speaking multiple languages. I've got a site in Dali in China where they speak Chinese, Korean, Japanese, English, and French. One site, and every employee is of Chinese nationality, and they're nationalist Chinese, and they speak well. We use them as a call center. So when people gripe, we have to be able to retool our workforce to compete in what's going to be a new world because they're serious about where they're going to be, and based on the projections, they're going to have to be a global powerhouse from an economic standpoint. This is also, I got this from the Department of Labor, so this reinforces an earlier comment. Learners today are going to have 10 to 14 jobs before they turn 40, and these are going to be different jobs. Not, you know, not like we think of going from accounting one, accountant one to financial analyst two, different jobs. They're going to have to move to stay employed into different functional areas. We're now embedding in the business, we're actually re, we're retooling our compensation to pay for breadth, not depth, because people have been hesitant to move function to function because they feel like they have to start over. Well, because the management team wasn't, we weren't set up for this. So if you're an accountant who becomes a customer service guy, well, worse. Let's say you're an engineer who becomes a financial analyst. Um, sorry, um, that's a big move. And so the, on the engineering side, nobody wants to let a good engineer leave, but on the finance side, you're getting an engineer, so they don't really think of him as capable in this space. And we end up taking that person and saying, well, you know what, you might be an engineering three, engineer three, but you're really a financial analyst one. So there's zero incentive for people to make aggressive moves cross-functionally. We're fixing that. So would we, would we have this concept of moving people. You red circle them in a level. You let them develop skills. And we're rotating high, pot, high potential people through the business to get breadth much earlier in their career. Or we're going to be faced with retraining a massive amount of the organization at some point in time in the future. But this has made us retrain our management team and our leadership team to look at talent not as a functional asset, but as a business asset that we've got to be willing to manage globally. Oops, sorry. That, that was my, one of my favorites. So, I, so 31 billion searches on Google every month, which is why we embedded social networking inside of the business. So I grew up with a Collier's Encyclopedia set that was 22 years old and a Webster's Dictionary. Um, the availability of information everywhere now is phenomenal. And actually, one of the biggest complaints, I shouldn't tell you this, of our customers is you can get better search results on Google looking for Cisco technical information than you can on my website, which is horrible but true. Um, and, they, and they drill right through. They see everything that's on my content. I mean, it's just one of those. So you know what I told them? Just use Google. Forget it. I mean, I think it's actually an option now on our website. You can actually use Google to search as opposed to using our own tools. Why compete against them? Who cares? Um, in a grand scheme of things, it doesn't make any sense. Um, this is my personal favorite. And this is important because the comments every minute, 24 hours of video is uploaded to YouTube. We have had to educate our leadership team around the transparency of your footprint in the world. I don't know if you guys have seen those billboards that got put up recently, but I've actually gotten videos sent to me by anonymous people of our executives acting up in public. No, honestly. You, you're, you have to understand, this is a very transparent world. I mean, how many things get caught on a camera now? Well, believe me, if you happen to be a Cisco employee someplace where somebody's making a, you know, an ass of himself, they're going to video it and they're going to send it to me. And I get to play that video for the executive going, okay, that was stupid. Um, we're in this business for Pete's sake. But again, it changes how you show up because there's complete transparency about what goes on inside of the world now. 
Yeah, this is another important one. And we were, I was talking to Warren up here. He's been doing some work with us at Cisco around employee engagement. So if you look at the employee base today, the statistic is one in four workers have been with their current employer less than a year and one in two less than five. This is a problem. I mean, this is a problem for every business, quite frankly. And this concept of employee engagement and how you motivate people to stay inside of the business is becoming a science. You must be in this business. It's called engagement strategies. You gave me your card. Um, so, you know, we, we have made this a science because inside of the business, we've recognized for the first time we have five different generations of employees with five different requests of the business. How do you tune what you provide them? from a comp standpoint, from a benefit standpoint, from a career aspiration standpoint? How do you off-ramp them and on-ramp them based on changes in their life? All of this was new to Cisco just two or three years ago. But now it is a science. We can talk about our demographics, about what's important to 50 plus, what's important to 35 to 50, what's important to the newbies. And we craft benefit programs and other programs to let those employees focus on where they want. We tool development programs for the different generations. They want different things. It's just a reality inside of the business. But you've, we have had to retrain that into our leadership. We've had to do so many overt things to create career conversations. This is the, so this is the honest God truth. So we got horrible. We, do have a, we have a pulse score where we ask our employees, so how are we doing on lots of subjects? And one of them was, I've had a meaningful career conversation with my manager in the last year. And we scored like 42% the first time we took the pulse. I'm like, okay, this is nuts. We, we have a process to do this. So then I said, okay, I want every manager in my organization to tell me that they had a mid-year career conversation, which would have been in January, and then we ran the pulse in May. I got a 97% yes, I had career conversations with my employee. I got a 62% response back from the employee. We're like, okay, I've discovered the problem. So the next year, I said to every manager, start out that conversation with, this is a meaningful career conversation. So when we're done, if you don't think so, do not leave this room. And we've retooled how we help them deliver that message. Because the young kids, the sub-30s, they want meaningful conversations about their career. How am I doing now? What does my job prospects look like? How do I get there? How do I get promoted? And these were fundamental skills that in a high-tech, booming business, we fundamentally just didn't develop. And I had to train the leaders to hold the manager responsible. Because what would happen is we'd have an employee for three to five years and they'd leave. So I went through all the training and then they blow. We can't afford this. Our turnover was phenomenal at, at that specific strata. This problem has gone away. That's a very satisfied population in the business. But it's because of this sort of phenomena that we've changed how we lead and manage. The other thing that's going on, and this is just reality, is the adoption of technology is gone off the charts. And I, you probably have seen these things. 38 years for radio, 13 for TV. I'm old enough now. I can actually remember having our first TV. Um, the internet, iPod and three, Facebook less than one. But this is the, what's incredible is there's going to be one trillion connected devices. So this internet of things conversation that Chinese is having in Wuxi, it's a serious conversation. I mean, we're actively talking to Ford and GM. Connected automobiles is the next big thing. Um, digital dashboards, digital communications inside of the car, things that you wouldn't have thought possible just a couple of years ago are slowly starting to roll out. There's a huge digital appliance going on in China right now because, because of the power problem. They want to manage power at the appliance level. So they're going to skip trying to do power management at home and go right to the appliance. Why? Because they've got a massive appliance industry in mainland China. 
So this, this whole concept of adoption and movement of technology has caused us to have to rapidly increase the pace of change in the business because we, we want to be a leader, not a follower. We're in a tech business, but it's become much more difficult. So we've had to change the, the process of, we used to have it, if you build it, they'll eventually get there, but adoptions were awful. We, we could come up with a new technology inside of the business, and it would take me three to five years to get the whole business there. We can't do that anymore. We just can't. Because by the time I get everybody to adopt it, I'm changing it again. So we've had to recraft sort of when are we going to be command and control and when are we going to try to get some collaboration inside of the business. And this has changed our leadership style. We've had to say, okay, now, now we're going to collaborate. Now, you know what, I'm making a decision and we're moving on. And that was new for us because we're confrontationally averse, we're mostly engineering and sales based, and that just doesn't, doesn't um, lend itself well to those behaviors. So we actually have a class, I think it's called creative conflict, where we're actually trying to train into our managers now the ability to have a focused, conflictual dialogue inside of the business. It's going to yield great results for us. If you're a passive-aggressive business trying to move fast, you're doomed. Um, so this, again, has helped us re-sort of shape how we look at ourselves. Now, again, you've got to put this in perspective. We're a hugely successful business, which only makes this kind of change harder because I don't have a burning platform. I mean, there's, there's, you know, that, that's the number one. Why do I have to do this? We're doing so well. And it isn't, and this just kills me, it's not about today, it's about what the possibilities are going to be for us 10 and 15 years now. Because 10 years from now, I'm going to have one fundamental competitor, and it's going to be China Inc. We're convinced. Um, they, are, they are cleaning up uh, around the fringe in our space, and Huawei started out 10 years after us, and they're almost as big as we are today. Um, and we have got to change the speed at which we can drive our business, and how we lead is going to be at the forefront of that. Quickly, Cisco, we're in 165 countries. We've got about 70,000 employees. Um, as I said, we're about $40 billion. Um, it's, you know, it's, a, it's a complicated environment. It's an interesting environment. We've, you know, I've been here a long time. We used to have company meetings in the cafeteria when I started here. Um, it was fun. We only, had we only had 13 offices. We were in 11 countries when I showed up. Um, life was a lot easier back in those days. But the reality is that this pace just continues. I mean, this is, we set the tone for the leadership team that, the pace of change is, is what it is, and we're not going to back off because we have plans to grow between 12 and 17 percent for the foreseeable future. We want to be 80 plus billion dollars in five years, and that's a very different infrastructure and leadership style to get to 80 than it was to get to 40 because there's a tipping point between 40 and 50 where a lot of companies get derailed. There's a whole list of them. So what we've done at Cisco over the last three or four years is we've really been pretty assiduous about how we define leadership both in terms of behaviors we want to see out of our leaders and sort of ro the role of leadership. And again, I rolled this out the first time, I think, three years ago in May. Um, and it, it, it was, you know, I got three yawns from the audience, quite frankly, I mean, because they, they didn't think we were serious. Um, and now, this is how we assess our leadership team. So when, they, when you get a review at above a director level, those five attributes on the left, are all assessed. And we get 360 input from at least seven people on all five attributes. Every leader in our business has a functional role and a cross-functional role. And they get assessed in both of those jobs. And if you can't collaborate over the last, I would say, five, I would say three years. I would say in the last three years, we've jettisoned between 50 and 150 executives out of the business who just couldn't make the transition. It's, it's a reality. I mean, it's the problem with being a fast-growing, high-tech company where command and control was the only thing we knew. When we moved to a collaborative, global environment, it just became tough. Um, we've now 
created training around, immersive training around these behaviors and roles. Um, every leadership, every senior high potential leader in the business gets a cross-functional opportunity um, on a regular basis, and they're sent away on an eight-week immersive training program. So we have really reshaped how we drive leadership. Um, it's, it's, on, it's part of our conversations at every leadership meeting. It's on our badge. Um, it's part of our cultural norm now. So we're serious about this, and we've done a lot of work to differentiate what management is and what leadership is in the business, because we confuse those two on a regular basis. And I don't pay people to lead who only can manage because that sub-optimizes their potential impact inside of the business. The other thing we've done is, my boss loves this phrase. We've created what I would call a formalized matrix management organization. My boss prefers to call it a dynamic networked organization, which nobody ever understands. So we are the largest functionally organized business, I think, in America today. Um, we're $40 billion, and there's one sales team, one manufacturing team, one HR team. And my boss likes it that way. And he's been really clear with me. He's not reorganizing his business into businesses while he's in charge. So I'm not going to reorganize his business, even though I think in some cases it would help. So to fix this problem and to go from an inside-out to an outside-in business, we've created nine councils, senior councils, run by EVPs and SVPs, five-segment focused, two technology focused, two operations focused, who run across the enterprise to drive change to make us more effective in the markets, to make us more productive in the business, and to, to actually drive process reengineering work. It's, it's, it's not an easy model, but it's a model that's worked well for us. And then we've created both the tools to assess our efficacy in this space and to bring people into collaborative environments. So we have something called IWE. Um, it recognizes you as in multiple personas in the business. So for me, it recognizes me as the EVP of ops. It recognizes me as the leader of the Connected Business Operations Council. I run the healthcare board. I run China Strategy. And it presents me every day with information that I need in those three personas, which makes it so much easier just to move sort of gracefully from work to work. Now, we're still rolling this out. In addition to that, we've, we've created a lot of collaborative workspaces. We've got... We've propagated video on our campuses so we can bring people in and out of meetings. Um, I mentioned earlier that we have our directory has expertise on it. It also has presence on it. So if I'm not in a meeting and they need me, they can go into the directory, find me. It'll show up how I'm present, either by cell phone, I'm at my desk, I'm available on video. They can bring me into a meeting, get a decision, and send me away. So we're actually crafting a whole workspace environment and a suite of tools and processes to make this thing work. And then, again, we assess people's skills in this new work environment. We think this is the only way it's going to work for us. And I have to say, it's, it's very tough globally. The one thing we haven't been able to solve for is time. The time differences are deadly, and our two biggest sites are India and here, and that 12 and a half hours is nasty. Um, so I can, can't tell you how many times I'm up at 3 o'clock in the morning on video at home in a meeting with the Bangalore campus. Um, but it's just a fact of life. I mean, this is sort of the new world. We have done some interesting things. We record video now. We set up a blog beside it so you can choose to miss the meeting and still interact with the content. Um, the latency creates some problems for some people, but you know, we think the new collaborative workspace in the new world is going to push people down this path. We'd like, again, to be at the forefront of this thing and lead it with technology, but it's, we're at a point where I think we're at a tipping point in terms of how we're doing it internally, and it resonates really well in the industry. Um, this is a big deal. Most people have single solutions in this space, and we think it's the whole envelope of changing the culture, changing the processes, and changing the technology to actually make this work. And it's, we're, we're going to be another decade getting this right, I'm relatively certain. Um, and I was never a big fan of matrix management because I've worked at big businesses before, 
um, but it's working for us. I have to say we're actually moving with more speed than we were before trying to get big projects that were driven cross-functionally done inside of the business. So with that as a backdrop, I'll open up to any questions, comments. You can poo-poo me. I don't really care. Um, do you want to offend me? Yeah, why don't we sit down up here and then we'll take questions oh, from sure. the audience and have a discussion. Sitting down Fabulous. is good for me.